a church ordinance is a prerequisite to the privilege of church membership. <laughs> Baptism does not save. Instead, it is intended to be a public declaration of the salvation that has occurred in the life of a person. In other words, it is an outward declaration of an inner transformation. This morning, Haven comes in this cold baptistry, ready for me to get this over with. Uh, but she comes this morning after a, uh, a year or so of wrestling with this decision. But we have seen such great growth and grace in her life. And it is absolutely my privilege to baptize you as my sister. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Good morning. Congratulations to you. Church family, I'm so glad that we can be in this sanctuary uh, because Pastor Craig made a mistake and didn't get everything scheduled for baptism, so today it is very cold up here. So y'all make sure and tell Haven congratulations after she gets warmed up. But again, thank you so much for being with us. Pastor Adam, if you'd come at this time. Amen. Good morning. Thank you. My name is Pastor Adam. I am the youth pastor of Students and Missions. That's my job. Uh, that was Pastor Craig. Pastor Kevin leads us in worship. In just a minute, Pastor Buster is going to come and read and pray for us. So you know all of us now, and we would like to welcome you to Malvern Hill Baptist Church. If you're visiting with us this morning, I hope that you received a connection uh, card along with a visitor's packet. And inside that um, packet is this card. If you would, please fill it out. Um, that gives us a record of your visit and an opportunity um, to drop you a letter later on uh, in, in the mail later on this week. If you're wondering about what this is all about, this gives you the fill this card out for us. Amen. Good morning and welcome once again. I believe I introduced myself earlier. My name is Craig Thompson and I am a uh, senior pastor here and it is our privilege to have you with us. Uh, really big, big crowd this morning for a, a middle of July Sunday, so I'm so glad. I know that once the children leave, you can breathe a little bit, but we are so glad to have them in here with us um, on Sunday mornings to remind us of, uh, of exactly what the future of our church should and must look like. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 12, Mark chapter 12. Pastor Buster's not with us this morning. He's out of town, which is why I was doing the scripture reading. Um, and then this week, I'm sure Pastor Adam mentioned, we are um, leaving for youth camp. They drafted me into that all over again this year, even though I swore that last year would be my last year. Somehow or other, I got voluntold. Yep, y'all got that. All right. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. If you would, please stand in honor of God's word. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How is he his son? And a great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that these words would leap off the page. That they, Lord God, would not only enter our ears, but Lord God, that they would take up root and residence in our minds, that they would stir our hearts. Father, I pray that we would wrestle this morning with what it looks like to engage in careful consideration of the truth claims of Jesus, of His divine nature, 
and of our privilege and responsibility of communicating that truth with others. Lord God, may we not ever walk away from a sermon as merely an academic exercise or an emotional experience. But instead, Lord God, I pray that we would be fully engaged as we saw just last week with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'll just be honest with you, we had a short week, Many, I guess all of you know that, we, we had the 4th of July on Thursday, and so, um, and then we, we, uh, we were working shorthanded in the office this week because of some vacations and things, and I looked, I, I often don't turn the page on my sermon until Monday afternoon or Tuesday, I, I plan my sermons out in advance um, on a spreadsheet, and so we're, we're, we're all the way into, I think, the end of September or into October now with that planning. But I, I don't turn the page for preparation for an individual sermon until uh, usually Monday or Tuesday. I, I try to immerse myself in, in the sermon uh, until Sunday, um, and then after Sunday, I kind of walk away from it. I'm not real good with uh, life groups sometimes because I've already moved on. Um, but this week, I turned the page over, and I, I recognized what we, what we will be working through this morning in worship. And I, Kevin stepped in my office. I said, man, what in the world was I thinking that on a short week we would wrestle with a topic that is so challenging? Uh, but God in His intention had that for us, and so that's where we are today. Uh, we're going to wrestle through um, a passage of Scripture that, that is a bit um, overwhelming at first. real question related here is, how could David say that his son was his Lord? How could Jesus defend his own divinity with a quotation directly from the Psalms? You know, it's been suggested by some through the years that Christianity will not stand up to hard questions. Of course, it's not true, but at the same time, the church has often been unwilling to regularly, the church has been unwilling to regularly confront some of the difficult questions of the faith. Historically, church youth groups, for instance, have often uh, married themselves or prided themselves on games and goodies with the goal to ratchet up emotional and con emotional commitment without rigorous engagement in the challenges of the faith but emotional intensity is not enough to block out a teen's questions if anything it leads them to redefine christianity purely in emotional terms which leaves them even more vulnerable when they finally face their hard questions this is true not only for teenagers, it's true for adults. If we reduce Christianity to nothing but an experience of emotional platitudes, then what happens when, when the easy times run out and we fall on hard times? If our Christianity is nothing but heart religion, what, what happens when our hearts are broken? If Christianity is rooted only in feelings, what happens when I feel disconnected from the Lord? Right here in Mark, we see... Just the opposite of Je from Jesus. Not merely an emotional engagement. See, rather than whipping people up into an emotional frenzy on Good Friday and then riding the emotion throughout the week of, of Passion Week, Jesus takes the Passion Week and wrestles with some challenging questions presented to him by the scribes and the religious leaders. When the scribes and the religious leaders ask Jesus hard questions, Jesus doesn't say, well, just look into your heart. Jesus doesn't say, well, we're just not going to get into all that. Jesus doesn't give the, we don't ask those kinds of questions. Said Jesus wrestles with them. He engages with the hard questions. But then right here in Mark chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus, Jesus essentially looks at the religious leaders and the others, and he says, hey guys, you forgot one. 
Hey, there's one hard question that you haven't asked me yet. And so rather than run from the hard questions about the Christian faith, Jesus runs to them. And in Mark chapter 12, verse 35, that's exactly what he did. Jesus looks at them in the temple and he says, Okay, y'all have asked me lots of questions. Now let me ask one for you. How is it that the scribes can say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. How could the son of David be both his son and his Lord? We're in the midst of, uh, of election season. I feel like we're always in the middle of an election season. But we're going to see debate after debate after debate. Let me tell you what you're not going to see happen on a debate stage. You're not going to see a candidate for any political office step up on a debate stage and say, Hey, about 30 years ago, I said some things that you might find a bit confusing and challenging. So today, what I want to do is ask all of you, what do you think I meant when I said that 30 years ago? No. They're standing up there going, well, I have evolved. And what I said then isn't true for who I am today. Let's forget about all that and let's just move forward. I'm a new person today. Jesus says, hey, let's dig up some of that hard stuff from the past. And let's wrestle with it. He didn't say, let's forget about it. He said, what in the world do you think David meant? How is it even possible that he could have said that? And how can the scribes believe what they believe? Folks, I want to urge you this morning to be willing to wrestle with some hard questions. I want to urge you this morning to not take the easy way out in your Christian life. It's okay to ask hard questions. It's okay to ask Jesus hard questions. It's okay to go to the Bible with hard questions. And folks, it is certainly okay for us to encourage and wrestle with those hard questions as they come from our children. But how do we get there? First of all, I want to answer the questions from this passage of Scripture. It's really pretty straightforward. Jesus says, how can they say that? How is it possible that the Christ would be both the son of David and that he would be David's Lord. And of course, the answer is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Jesus' lineage is that of the son of David, but he is also the son of God. And so it is absolutely possible that because Jesus is both human and divine, that he could be both the son of David and the Lord of David. Jesus is asking questions, and he's essentially standing in front of them and saying, I who speak to you am he. If you want the answer, look up. It's right here. But folks, how do we take what is basically a pretty simple scripture passage and apply it into our lives? I, I believe that the best way for us to apply it in our lives is for us to wrestle with the question of whether or not Christianity is coherent. Is the Christian faith a coherent worldview? You see, that's what Jesus was wrestling with. Jesus says the Bible seems to contradict itself right here. Folks, when y'all hear, let me back up. Many of you, when somebody says, does the Bible contradict itself, you go, oh, and then you run and hide in a corner somewhere, right? Well, somebody walks to you and says, I believe the Bible contradicts itself. And you say, well, that's not true, and then you run away. Jesus says 
the Bible seems to be a con- contradiction, so let's wrestle with it. Folks, what, I'm, what might our world look like if as followers in Jesus Christ, when people approached us with difficult questions, instead of just sticking our hands in our pockets and going, Ooh, what would it look like if we looked at them and said, man, that is a challenge. Let's figure that out together. Let's wrestle together with what that could possibly mean. I am not dumb. There are some of you sitting in this room today who are skeptical about the claims that I make about the Word of God. There are some of you sitting in this room today who, even if you're not willing to say it out loud, are a bit skeptical about some of the truth claims that are made by Christians and some of the claims that are made in the Word of God. Folks, I want you to hear me say, I know that. And I'm willing to wrestle through those hard things with you. The truth is that Christianity is a coherent religion, a coherent worldview, and the answers that you need are found in God's Word. Many folks have not tried Christianity and found it wanting. Instead, they have left it untried. How do we deal with this this morning? What do we do? I think there's three things that we can take from this passage of Scripture when we wrestle with the question, is Christianity coherent? Now, the majority of this message this morning is going to be geared more toward how it is that you might present Christianity as a coherent worldview to others. But we're going to wrap it up with some application this morning because there might be some of you here who need to hear not only how it is that you might present the Christian worldview to someone else, but you need to hear how it is that the Christian worldview, that the truths of Christ's gospel might actually impact and affect your life. So don't tune me out this morning. This might apply to you in a way that you wouldn't even anticipate. The first thing I think we see this morning is that we need to be willing to practice charitable confrontation. Charitable confrontation. Now, you, I, don't, I don't mean charity in giving away money. I mean charitable in a loving sort of sense, in the old KJV version of charity. Charitable confrontation. We need to be willing to confront people in love. Many of you have asked me already what happened to my nose. Wyatt, do you want to come tell the story? You don't? He really does. Like, he loves the story so much. He looked at me the other day. He said, I hope somebody asks so I can tell them. I wish that someone on Thursday morning had practiced charitable confrontation in my life. That, this, this mark on my nose didn't come about as a result of confrontation. It came about as a result of the lack of confrontation. I was helping someone try to put up a swing over a tree limb. And this person didn't have all the things that was needed. When we put up the last swing, we took a piece of kite string. I wrapped it around a baseball. I handed it to Wyatt. Wyatt threw the kite string over the, over the tree limb. The kite string came down. We tied the kite string to the rope. We pulled the rope up. We tied up the swing. And boom, we got us a swing. Well, this person that we were trying to help didn't have all the things that were necessary. We needed something heavy to get it over the tree limb. Yeah, y'all see where this is going. It's actually worse than you know. Because the heaviest thing I could find on short notice was a pipe wrench. That's right. Yeah. See, right now you're looking up there and not seeing a skimp place on my nose. You're seeing stupid written across my forehead. Do you know nobody looked at me and said, that might not be a good idea. Nobody said, what are you doing? Wyatt was there. Aubrey was there. Aubrey's watching the whole thing. At no point does she say, Daddy, I don't know about that. My brother is standing there, and he goes, let me back up so you don't hit me. But nobody says this might not be intelligent. Now, granted, 
I've got a PhD. I'm 38 years old. I'm the pastor of your church. There should be something inside of me. But the whole time I'm going, this might not be the best idea, but hey, we're just trying to get the job done. And so up goes the pipe wrench. The pipe wrench hits the tree limb and down it comes right on my face. That's the truth. <laughs> By God's grace, I didn't break my nose or lose any teeth. You know, I wish somebody had been willing to confront me on Thursday. Lovingly confront me. I didn't want anybody to hit me with a pipe wrench. I was dumb enough to hit myself with a pipe wrench. But it would have been nice, in retrospect, if somebody in love had looked at me and said, Brother, like literally, because one of my brothers was there, Brother, Father, family member, friend, I don't know that this is the best decision for your life. You see, folks, not all confrontation is bad. Sometimes confrontation might save us from getting smacked in the face with a pipe wrench. It was a big one too, y'all, like that. You know, Jesus went on, a, on offense with the scribes and religious leaders right here. And he, he engaged them in a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of confrontation. He's standing and he's teaching to everybody that will listen, but the scribes and the religious leaders are there. And Jesus confronts them in their error. And he says to them, how is it possible that you could say these things? This seems to be contradictory. Folks, listen to me. We can't always stand around just waiting for someone to ask us about the hope that is within us. If we are going to see the world change with the gospel message of Jesus Christ, we've got to be willing to step into people's lives and lovingly, charitably confront them. We maybe have to even force ourselves into conversations about Jesus. Now understand, when I say force, again, we're not saying force yourself in by beating people with a pipe wrench. But we might have to leverage our way into some of these conversations. It's possible that if we are going to see people change, that we need to lovingly confront them and say, do you think that's the best idea for your life? Folks, when's the last time that you were willing to look at somebody and lovingly, compassionately just look them in the eye and say, I, I care deeply about you, but the decisions that you're making with your life concern me greatly. Why don't we do that? Because it is not comfortable. It is not fun. We like to be liked, don't we? Even the most antisocial among us, you still like to be liked. Nobody likes to be disliked. Folks, if we're going to present this coherent Christian worldview, this coherent Christianity to the world outside the walls of this church. We've got to be willing to practice charitable confrontation. We've got to be willing to look and act like Jesus. To look at people living lives that are far from the gospel and to call them into a relationship with Christ. We've got to be willing to look at people and say, you say you believe this is true, but how is it possible for that to be true and this to be true? We've got to practice charitable confrontation. The second thing this morning we've got to be able to do, or be willing to do, we've got to be comfortable with discomfort. 
we've got to be comfortable with discomfort. Some confrontation is uncomfortable. We're just going to have to get to a place where we're just comfortable with that. We're just okay with being uncomfortable. I have a friend who's started working out recently. and um, I mean, he's just, he's just uncomfortable all the time. He's gone all in. He's just he's sore. He's he's miserable half the time. And he told me he told me he started dieting. Uh, he's changed his whole diet. And this he said I am hungry all the time. I said, well, you know, man, what, what are you eating? He said, I'm 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 drinking a, a a smoothie for lunch every single day. I said, dude, I would be starving to death. Why? Why? He said, that's just what I got to do. Man, he's, he's gotten to a place where he's willing to be uncomfortable to get whatever it is. I don't know what he wants. I'm not drinking smoothies every day, so whatever y'all find out of that. But we got to be willing to be uncomfortable with discomfort. Or, I mean, we gotta be, that didn't make any sense. We've got to be willing to be comfortable with discomfort. But it's not just comfortable with the discomfort of others. We've got to be willing to be comfortable with our own discomfort. Let's just be honest. The reason that we don't confront others in their sin, the reason that we don't confront others with their abusive habits, self-abusive habits, is not always, let me back up, is often and almost always not because we're so concerned with them, but we're so concerned with how uncomfortable we would be to have that conversation. Folks, we are going to have to be okay with being a little bit uncomfortable in this life of course it's not just our own discomfort but we've got to be willing with causing the discomfort of others when we confront people in their errant worldviews, we don't make them happy we normally upset the apple cart now that doesn't mean that we want to be unnecessarily offensive i don't want to look at somebody and say you're wearing an ugly dress now let me tell you about jesus that doesn't usually work But when we look at somebody and we tell them that Jesus is the only way to salvation, we have necessarily upset their lives. We're going to have to be okay with that. I first read Fahrenheit 451 in middle school. And Wyatt read it, read it recently, so I've had reason to revisit it. You know, in, the, in the early stages of that book, one question profoundly upsets the protagonist, Guy Montag. He meets a unique teenage girl on the street who hammers him with questions, but there's one question that leaves him losing sleep at night. And it's this, are you happy? Are you happy? Three words. And those three words stop his whole world. And in the course of that book, he begins to lose sleep as he wrestles with the question of, are you happy? He runs into this young girl again, and she basically questions, are you in love? Well, he's married, but when he begins to question whether or not he's in love, nobody can come to his mind, and his whole world is upside down. He finds himself unable to sleep, unable to function. He's crying at night, and no one seems to care. Folks, I want you to know that when we begin to ask people hard questions about their spiritual state, It is going to leave people profoundly uncomfortable. But we've got to be okay with creating a a level of discomfort in the lives of people 
so that we might be able to share with them the good news and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Nobody will ever turn to Jesus until they're convinced that what they're doing is wrong and that Jesus is right. The only way to get somebody to turn to Jesus without acknowledging that what they're doing is wrong is to create some sort of a polytheistic understanding. So I'm going to worship lots of things, and I'm just going to bring Jesus in as one of them. But the Bible gives us a completely different picture. Confronted with the question, what must I do to be saved? What do we find in the New Testament? Repent and be baptized. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, there is no salvation outside of repentance. Repentance means a complete change of mind. Now, we tend to, to, to speak of that as a change of mind, but the, 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 the Greek word there is metanoia, and, and the root word from which my, that we take mind carries with it sort of a, a bigger picture. It's not just a change of an idea or a change of thought pattern. It's a change of an entire way of living, a change of an entire worldview. That, that repentance says, I'm going to unseat my existing worship patterns and instead of worshiping me and satisfying me and doing what I've always wanted to do, I'm going to walk away from who I've been and I'm going to walk into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. There's a reason why there are so many tears when people get saved. And it's not because we need to stir up emotion for salvation. It's because when we come face to face with the reality of what is necessary for me to experience eternal life, then I come to grips with the absolute gut-wrenching reality that what I've done up to this point didn't work. But there is a hope in Jesus Christ. Folks, if we're going to proclaim the goodness of Christ to a world that does not know Him, we have to grow comfortable with discomfort. Our own discomfort and that of others. In her fine book, Finding Truth, Nancy Piercy identifies five principles that can be used to counter secular worldviews and to highlight the life-giving truths of the gospel. Listen to these. She says, first, we've got to be willing as we try to communicate the good news of Christ with others, we've got to be willing to identify the idol. We got to be willing to look at folks and, and try to understand. See, the, the root issue in our world is that we all worship something. Everybody worships something. Even the most ardent atheist who refuses to believe that there is a transcendent God, what do they worship? The materialists of our world worship the cosmos and the material things. We've got to identify the idol. What is the idol? The idol is the material world, perhaps. Sometimes the idol is staring back in the mirror every single morning. We've got to be able to identify the idol. We've got to identify the idol's reductionism. In other words, not only do we identify the idol, we've got to understand and recognize that when somebody worships an idol, they tend to reduce the world down. So for a person who, who is a materialist or a naturalist, for a person who acknowledges only the existence of the material world, we've got to, wrestle, we've got to force them to wrestle with the reality of their convictions. And if you affirm materialism only, then you necessarily reject anything that is not material. What is not material? Mind, soul, and spirit. For a materialist, for a materialist to have a cohesive worldview, 
That materialist to have a coherent worldview, it is necessary that they deny the existence of mind, soul, and spirit. And so the thought processes that you have for the materialist have nothing to do with with a mind or a soul that inhabits your body. Instead, it is just the experience of chemical reactions in your brain. Number three, test the idol. Does it contradict with what we know about the world? If we take materialism again at its root, does materialism seem to satisfy what we know about the world around us? Listen, if all that we know is just an experience of chemical reactions, then how do we explain love or beauty or art? In a purely evolutionistic perspective, there is no explanation for anything to be beautiful. From an evolutionary perspective, there is no explanation for true, life-giving love. Especially the love that is directed towards the inf- those who are physically or mentally inferior in our culture and society. From a materialistic, naturalistic worldview, evolutionarily speaking, the only thing that makes sense is for us to neglect those who are most vulnerable among us and for the survival of the fittest to move forward. And yet what we see throughout human history is an overwhelming desire to protect the vulnerable. Why? Materialism doesn't seem to satisfy that. Test the idol. Does it contradict itself? Again, materialism sort of fails on itself. Uh, Postmodernism fails on itself. Postmodernism argues that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Okay, that's what a postmodern believes. Postmodernism. Here's the problem. The moment that I say there is no such thing as absolute truth, I have just made an absolute truth claim. Your, 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 your worldview falls in on itself. We've got to test that. And then finally, to replace the idol, to make the case for Christianity. So we look at those folks and we say, your worldview is collapsing in on itself. You've been unwilling to wrestle with the hard things. But let me share with you the coherent picture of a God who loves you and gave his life for you. But folks, all those things can only happen if we're willing to be uncomfortable with the discomfort that comes about as a result of our willingness to confront and the discomfort that comes about as a result of the clash of worldviews. People are broken before they come to Jesus because they recognize just how broken and without hope their efforts at salvation have been. Then finally this morning, lead toward the answer. Notice that Jesus didn't give the answer. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? How many of you have ever walked away from an evangelistic engagement with a question? Not many. Jesus didn't, he led toward the answer, but didn't get it. We've got to be willing to ask questions, lovingly challenged, to be comfortable with the things that are uncomfortable, and to take time to lead toward the answer. Jesus is the answer, yes, but people are not always ready to hear the answer right away. You know, it might take hours, weeks, or even years. Or Are you willing to lead people toward the answer? Are you willing to lovingly guide them toward Jesus even if they're not willing to hear it today? Are you willing to take time to continue to sit with them at their kitchen table and at your kitchen table and at all the other tables across the world for as long as it takes until they're willing to receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? See, the possibility exists that you may share Christ with someone today who shows no interest in the gospel, but you don't have to give up and you certainly don't have to quit. 
lead them and love them toward Jesus. Make the case for Jesus over and over and over again. Make the case for Jesus with your words, your actions, and your life. Jesus left people with a cliffhanger. Watch this. He asked a question and walked away. Can you imagine the conversations later? What in the world could he possibly have meant? Can you imagine how he might have driven them to wrestle with their own convictions? So that at some point, what we're going to know is in the very near future in this story, that they're going to discover the truth that they've longed for. But, but look at the last part there. And the great throng heard him gladly. They heard Jesus gladly. They weren't angry or despondent. They were glad to hear Jesus, even though what he said was profoundly upsetting. Y'all, do people walk away from time with you wanting to know more about Jesus? Do people walk away from time with you wanting to know more about Jesus? Or do people walk away from time with you going, that guy's driving me nuts? Do people walk away from time with you Want to know more about Jesus or do they walk away from time with you going, I don't want anything to do with that jerk. Do people walk away from their time spent with you and wonder, how is this possible? How is it possible that this person could be filled with such love and compassion and mercy and kindness and generosity? How is it possible that there could be this hope in Jesus that I've never experienced. How is it possible that Jesus could change this person so much? If I mentioned this last week, I'm sorry, but I'm going to mention it again. I loved talking recently with somebody who's been visiting our church. They've given their life to Christ recently. They're going to be, uh, and, 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 and this, is, this is what I love. This person said so they walked into our church and they saw someone else sitting in our church. Somebody they'd grown up knowing. And this was it. I said, if God can change him, then I know he can do something with me. If God can do that in his life, I want that. Do people walk away from time with you going, man, I want whatever he's got. We had a guy some years ago visit our church for a while. And I got this text from him. I should have printed it out so I could read it to you. But I got the, the, this crazy text. He said, I, I just went to lunch with somebody from your church. He gave his name. So I just went to lunch with him today. He said, in all of my 50 years of life, there's never been a man who invited me to lunch and wanted nothing except to spend time with me. I've never experienced that. He said, I don't know what y'all are doing there, but I want to be a part of it. Wow. The Bible says that the people heard Jesus gladly. How do we present this coherent picture of Christianity? Folks, we got to be willing, we got to be willing to live a life that is changed by the gospel, to coherently live a life that looks like Jesus. We've got to allow for the words of God to change and impact us. 
We've got to allow for that command to love God and love neighbor to be not just words on a page, but marching orders. We've got to love in ways that are palpable, experiential. We've got to be willing to wrestle with the hard things of the faith. So I ask you this morning, who is your one? Who is it in your life that you need to lead toward the answer? It might be somebody that today you can't imagine that they would actually give their life to Jesus. It might be somebody that today, right now, you wrestle with believing there's actually hope for them. Who is that person that maybe, maybe the best thing and the only thing you can do right now is just to pray for them and to spend time with them and pray that God would open the door? Who is it? But this morning we've also talked a great deal about how it is that you can and should lead others into conversations about Jesus. But I'm, I'm curious this morning if not only some of you need to wrestle with how it is that you might present Christianity as coherent to the world around you, but perhaps there's somebody here today who says, Craig, I've I got to be honest with you. I've been unwilling to surrender to Jesus because I just didn't want to give up. I, I, I've been willing to, unwilling to surrender to Jesus because to be honest with you, Craig, I, 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 I'm just a little nervous about what it looks like to walk away from this way of living and walk into something new. Somebody here today might say, you know what, Craig, I really am not concerned with the coherence of Christianity. See, see many of you who have never given your life to Jesus... You know that it's true. The Apostle Paul told us the same thing. You live in a state of cognitive dissonance. That's what psychologists call it. But the Apostle Paul spoke to it long before Sigmund Freud had ever been heard of. Because in Romans chapter 1, Paul said, We suppress the truth because we do not like it. Those things that hurt or that we don't like, we tend to push them down and try to forget about them. And when we're confronted with the truths of Christ and the horrors of our sin, some of you have suppressed it. It's become a repressed memory because you don't like what it says. And I'm here today, and I'm begging you today to move past the suppression. To move past the fear. To accept that though you are a sinner, there is a Savior. And His name is Jesus. His burden is easy and His yoke is light. And though you have ran from Him, maybe for your entire life, today can be the day that you fall down before Christ. And you say, Lord God, I know that I'm a sinner. But I know that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. And Lord God, I still have questions. But Lord God, I'm coming to you in faith, believing that as I lay my burdens and my questions before you, that Lord God, you can answer them. Because regardless of what else, whatever else is or isn't true, I know this to be true. You died on a cross on Calvary's hill and three days later, you overcame death, hell, and the grave. And anybody that can do that is somebody that I want to follow. I can trust a Savior who can rise from the dead.
Would you come this morning? Alone in my sorrows, alone in my shame, would you come? You don't need to be alone. Jesus died to set you free. However it is that the Lord's working in your life this morning, perhaps you need to come up here and you need to pray, Lord God, I know who my one is. God, I know who that person is that I need to present this coherent message of Christianity to. Perhaps you're here today and you say, Pastor, I'm not ready to give my life to Jesus, but, but Pastor, I know that I need to wrestle with these hard questions. I've ran from it for too long. And today I begin my quest to find the answers. Perhaps you just come and say, my quest ends right here because I found the answer and he's Jesus. Can I tell you that wherever you are, God will meet you right there. He will not leave you or forsake you. As our musicians come, would you come this morning? Stand with me. Father God in heaven, you've given us more than we could hope for in the person of Jesus. Father, some of the questions are indeed challenging. But God, just as Jesus didn't run from them, God, we trust that we don't have to. Lord, I pray that we would all draw near to Jesus with our hard questions and our easy questions, that we would come to Christ and ask questions about suffering and pain. We would come to Christ and we'd ask questions about creation and evolution. We'd come to Christ. We'd ask questions about pain and tears and destruction. But Lord God, I pray that at the end of all those things, we would find satisfaction in knowing that Christ is our all in all. In Jesus' name, amen.